Good evening, everyone. I'm Jonathan Birch, Associate Professor at the LSE, and it's a real pleasure to welcome you to this Forum for Philosophy event on the topic of addiction. It's hard to know how to treat something when you don't know what it is, but that's the situation we find ourselves in when it comes to addiction. It's easy enough to characterize from the outside. It's a pattern of behavior involving repeated use of something, even when the consequences become clearly destructive and devastating. That thing could be alcohol, another kind of drug, gambling, work, social media. But that doesn't bring us that much closer to understanding what addiction is from the inside. And it's a phenomenon that defies many of our usual categories. It seems to blur the boundaries between the mind and the brain, the boundaries between society and the individual person, boundaries between what we are responsible for and what we are not responsible for. It's also incredibly difficult to recover from, and yet many people do recover, despite our relative ignorance about what's really involved in the condition. We'll be talking in this event about what addiction is, how people recover from it, and what we can learn from this process of addiction and recovery about what it is to be human, what it is to be a self, what it is to be an agent. And I'm joined by three panelists who are bringing unusual and incredibly interesting and important perspectives to bear on these questions. They are Hannah Pickard, philosopher of psychiatry, Molly Matheson, director and founder of the New Note Orchestra, the world's first recovery orchestra, and Alex Masonovich, a member of that orchestra who plays the keyboard and the theremin. To give you a sense of the format for the event, we'll be talking about what addiction is in the, in the first half of the event and then moving towards questions of how people recover from it. And then at the end, we'll take some of your questions. You can ask your questions at any time using the Q&A function in this webinar. Please do, and we'll get to them at the end of the event. So let's start with you, Hannah. You've written in your work about how you have this very unusual background. You're a philosopher, but you've also worked as a therapist. And you've written about how that experience of interacting with people suffering from addiction changed your view about what addiction is. Do you want to tell us how your views changed and how it happened? Sure. Um well, in some sense, maybe the place to start is on a note that you touched on in your introduction, which is the importance of thinking about addiction from the inside, right? Thinking about it from the perspective of a person's psychology, where they are living a life where they're struggling to stop using drugs or to stop engaging in a behavior, which on the one hand, they clearly really want to do. But then on the other hand, is just wrecking this terrible destructive havoc in their lives and I guess one of the things that being close to people who are facing that struggle does whether you're an individual friend or family member or you come at it from a more clinical perspective 
is put you in relationship with that person and, and their psychology. And so trying to understand things from the inside is really what you want to do, right? What you want to do to understand them, what you want to do to try to help, because it's obviously the kind of thing which will give you the most insight and ability to help. So in some sense, that's the situation I found myself in um, when I was working uh, part-time in a complex needs service. So it was a service for people with personality disorder and complex needs, many of whom struggle with addictions as well, although that wasn't the primary focus of the service. And I guess in virtue of doing that, I really came to see just the power of ordinary human psychology when we looked at it in its nuance and its heterogeneity in giving us some kind of grip on what it's like to be an addict and on how we might explain why someone persists in such irrational and self-destructive behavior. But that experience of sort of thinking psychologically stood in really sharp contrast to the dominant models of addiction that we have in the more academic and popular literature. So, you know, very crudely, briefly, one of them is the moral model, where you explain why someone is being so destructive and continuing to use drugs, basically by blaming their character, right? So the moral model sees the choice to use drugs and addiction as a fully fledged choice which people are responsible for and they make because they're bad right so we have this duality of choice and moral condemnation in that model and in the opposing sort of uh, much more common model today the neurobiological model which treats addiction as a disease of compulsion the idea is that there's no choice at all that long-term drug use has certain kind of very specific neuroadaptive effects, which mean that people are literally compelled to use because of the impact on their brain. And so moral condemnation is OTOs here because nobody's doing anything that they're doing voluntarily, right? We don't have choice here. We just have a brain disease of compulsion. So these models are very different. They take very different attitudes towards the morality of addiction and drug use, and they take very different attitudes towards what explains drug use and addiction. But they're united in keeping our focus off ordinary human psychology of addiction, what it's like to be an addict, what we might try to understand someone is doing from their own perspective. And I guess... My academic work has really sought to um, explore how far we can understand addiction through ordinary human psychology, but it's based very much as you initially asked me about in that clinical experience, right, of trying to relate yeah. to someone and help them. So it is important, isn't it, to move beyond that moral model in that we don't want to be thinking that, uh, you know, addicts are to blame when when in the grip of an addiction but you think that in in moving beyond that that blaming the blaming the person model people have been too willing to sort of swing to the other extreme of saying it's entirely a brain disease that you know that the mind doesn't even matter anymore i do i mean i guess what i think is that we're in need of a kind of 
serious look at the gray mass in the middle as opposed to these black and white extremes. And um, so I, I think that on the one hand, uh, there is decision-making in addiction, right? It is compromised, it is complicated. It needs to be situated within people's actual lives where they may be living in social and material circumstances of terrible adversity and poverty and isolation. So we need to be on the one hand thoughtful about the role of decision-making, but on the other have a much more um, broad and sort of complicated understanding of what human decision-making is. Now, it would be false to say that that doesn't allow in the possibility of blame, but I guess what I think is it doesn't necessitate it. And that it's also extremely important to start challenging some of the more moralistic and puritanical and hypocritical attitudes about drugs that permeate our society. And also to be real about the kind of suffering and to be honest, I think in some cases, you know, self-loathing that people who struggle with addiction experience. So my own sense is that if you actually know people who didn't know what it's like to, in any sense, live with addiction. The idea that it's morally right to blame and condemn is a moral atrocity in itself. That that is not how we respond to suffering among our community and in our fellows. Mm. So yes, the idea of decision-making allows in that possibility, but then it's up to us not to step into being moralistic and blaming people, but rather to maintain a kind of concern and nuance and compassion. I'd love to bring in Alex on this. Of course, Alex, you have this this lived experience yourself mm-hmm. of having gone through addiction. I mean, what can you say to us, I suppose, to try and convey some sense of what it's like from the inside? Yeah, that's so it's um as an addict um, and I'm, I consider myself to be an addict. My, I mean, mainly I was. Uh, it, it was alcohol was my was my main addiction. <clears throat> Although when I was drinking, I did use other drugs. It was normally alcohol, but my, alcohol was my main one because it was more available and it was the thing I liked the most. Uh, but it spilled over into other drugs, on into other drugs, and uh, you know also into uh, other other things. Even now. You know, I've not touched I've not touched a drop of drink in 13 years. But even now, I, I find issues with sugar, uh, with other repetitive behavior, even, you know, <laughs> even buying records on the Internet sometimes becomes this very repetitive behavior. And it's very difficult to explain to people who don't have that experience what it's actually like. The closest I can get to it really is when I was drinking. Um, if I had one drink, then that would set off a, a, a feeling. Something would, would turn on in my mind. And the thing that would turn on my mind was almost like a love affair. It was almost like being in love with someone. At that moment, I was in love with this idea of having another drink. And the idea of just stopping drinking at that point would be similar to turning around to someone and saying, you know, in a bad relationship, why don't you just not love that person? It's, it was an emotional connection that I had to, to the drink. And it became, 
Um, and it wasn't always like that when I started drinking. I mean, I, when I started drinking uh, in my early teens, I think, but when I really started, I always drank to get drunk. I loved it. I had a great time. But I got, uh, I, I got sober my, uh, at the age of 20, no, 30, actually, a couple of months after my birthday. And at that point, I wasn't enjoying the life that I was leading. I, I didn't like who I was. I didn't like the life I, I had. I was, uh, I was suicidal. Um, I felt ancient. I just felt like I was at the end of my life. But when I had that drink every single day, that first drink just led on some more because it was this love affair. I just couldn't, it's, I mean, mm. the physical choice maybe to not do it, to, to not have that second, second drink might have been there. But it was just at that moment, that was the thing that I wanted most in the world. And it was there and I could have it. I mean, Hannah, does that description of addiction as this love affair, does it chime with your own encounters with addicts in the past? So it does. And it, it's also something which has been theorized by some of the great attachment psychologists who sort of understand the relationship you can develop to a drug as precisely online with a love or a personal attachment where, you know, what you get from it is the kind of emotional feeling of security, of safety, of relief, maybe of calm, which sometimes we can get from other people. And if you think of it that way, I mean, imagine the person you get that from, right? Imagine the person who makes you feel okay in yourself, right? Who gives you that. And now imagine being cut off for them. That's it. You're not going to see them anymore. You'd be desperate to see them, right? So I think that like what Alex has described, yes, it's, it's, it's both something that I think, you know, many people, not everyone, but many people speak of and has a really strong theoretical foundation within psychology. Um, but also we can all understand, right? We can all understand that sense of desperation you would have if that one thing that made you okay in yourself, that you loved more than anything else, that gave you security was taken away from you and understand then why you would persist in seeking it out, even if it had elements to it that were really problematic in other ways. I mean, maybe a nice analogy in some ways is a really violent or tortured or abusive relationship where on the one hand, there can be love and we need to acknowledge that and not pretend it's always love less. But on the other hand, there's something terribly destructive that the person needs to extricate themselves from. So, um, yeah, I thought that was extremely eloquently put and really rung true to what I've heard people speak about. Mm. Yeah, so there's this important idea in your work, Hannah, then that we've got to think about addiction as this psychological phenomenon. It's not moral failing. It's not yeah. a neurobiological compulsion either, but it's this, this psychological phenomenon. It sounds like another important idea for you is that the environment matters, you know, the, the social environment matters. It's not just simply about the individual. Oh, hugely. I mean, that, that in some sense, I hope that will just follow from any emphasis on psychology, right? So if you think about how anyone makes decisions, makes choices, lives their lives, you need to relativize it to the context in which they find themselves, right? So the very very real options you have, the genuine constraints on you will affect what you can and can't do, what it's possible to choose and impossible to choose. 
And so that's kind of a general theoretical point. But of course, one of the things we know about addiction is that it's highly correlated. There are, of course, exceptions, but highly correlated with people who really do live in situations of poverty, of despair, of hopelessness, who may have like come from backgrounds where you know, they haven't had the kind of upbringing which allows them to form good attachments to their parents, right? Sometimes people start using drugs and alcohol very early because they're looking for some love in some sense that isn't there in their family or in their environment. And so all of those things help contextualize decision-making and choices and are incredibly important, therefore, for understanding yeah. a person's psychology. They're also incredibly important for knowing where to intervene, right? So one of the things about both the moral model and the brain disease model is that they point us towards trying to fix the individual, right? Either there's a problem with the character or there, there's a problem with their brain, and that's what needs fixing. Well, sometimes we might be able to fix things by focusing on the circumstances in which somebody lives and lifting them out of poverty or offering them a community of support or a job. And those can be tremendously powerful ways of helping someone move towards recovery, which kind of get blindsided by, you know, mm. both the moral model and the disease model. Yeah. Alex, does that chime with your experience? Do you think the, the environment you were in was a factor in the addiction you develop? Um, yeah, that's that's really interesting. I mean, I come from I come from uh, a, a a pretty a pretty good family. You know, um, uh, we weren't. I, I wouldn't have described the our upbringing as poverty at all. Um, but what was in my environment when I was young was a lot, was a lot of drinking. I mean, you know, we we're, we're Irish Catholics from Liverpool. There was a lot of drinking in in the family. Um, but uh, I moved when in, in my early 20s, I moved from the UK to a foreign country. <laughs> and um, in that foreign country, the community that I found was um, expat uh, English teachers is what I did for a while. And within that community, there was a lot of heavy drinking. And um, that was the community that I felt most comfortable in, you know. Not the community that I prefer to be in, but the community that I felt the most comfortable in. And I would say towards the end of my drinking, the people that I, I spent the most time with and that I, I hung out with were people that I didn't particularly like, but people who I would be comfortable to drink with, people who drank as much as me. Um, so that's what I would say about that. But I think that I think one one thing that was very important for me when I when I got sober was to to have a sober community around me. I went to peer to peer support groups, and you know there, there are a lot of different types out there now. And uh, and I went to one of them, and it was uh, it was very important to me that it was English speaking as well, because um, I was in a foreign country, and that was I that was incredibly important for me. That's the, I I, cre I credit um, getting sober to that. You know, I don't think I don't think I would have been able to manage without a community around me. Great, and Hannah, I wanted to uh, ask as well about the the diversity of experiences, I suppose, of of addicts. One thing I've heard people say about autism is that if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. That the condition is incredibly variable. I 
could imagine that the same is actually true of addiction. Is that is that right? Well, that's certainly my view. I didn't know that um, that phrase about autism, which is wonderful, and I'm going to poach it now for for addiction. Um, so, look, it would be silly to say that we can't sometimes um, get some generalizations or patterns, right? And that there's there's some commonalities between people, and that's part of why certain kinds of support groups can be so helpful because people can share experience and feel a bit less alone because. They, they have those commonalities. But um, I do think that there really is no single explanation of why people persist in using drugs despite the terrible destructive effects on their lives, that we have a host of explanations. And, you know, for a while I was publishing papers which said things like, there are three explanations. And then the next paper, I realized there was another. So I'd say there were four mm. explanations and then there were five. And now I'm sort of up to saying something like there's at least six or seven, but you know, no doubt they can be subdivided further and new things that I haven't recognized will, will come forward. forward. But I mean, just to sort of, sort of pluck a couple of things, which um, maybe can be a bit of a platform for talking further with, Alex and Molly about some of their work. So, you know, one of the things that I think is extremely important, which, you know, is, is part of our, our sort of folk understanding of addiction, but which has received extremely little philosophical or indeed scientific attention is denial, right? And the idea that part of why you might keep using despite negative consequences is that you're in denial that drug use is having this effect on your life. Right. So that's something that AA makes a lot of and it's part of our, our sort of ordinary thinking about addiction. But it's something that has been really under theorized and it's clearly so crucial um, ways in which we can deceive ourselves or delude ourselves about the impact our behavior is actually having on ourselves and the people we care of. So that's one thing. Um, but here's something totally different and which is utterly inconsistent with denial. So if somebody who was in denial couldn't also now be the kind of person I'm about to describe, um, which is a person who self-identifies as an addict and really doesn't know who they would be if they weren't an addict. And I guess in my own work, in my own experience, I, I, I came to see that explanation in terms of identity and the way in which being an addict can shape your sense of who you are and define the people who are in your life and the structure that your life has as something that's incredibly powerful in keeping somebody stuck within addiction and precisely what they need to be working on and find a way through in order to move out of it. So I don't think of it as just fluke when Alex says that when he was drinking a lot, there was this group of people he was drinking with and they were his community. And then part of what was necessary to move out of it was to have a different community where they were collectively defining themselves as people who didn't drink, right? So there's that shift into a different kind yeah. of identity. When so, I mean, that's the kind of thing I'd love to hear more from Alex about, but you can see how somebody can't both self-identify as an addict and be in denial. Those are utterly inconsistent. So if both of those explanations are true, we already have two completely divorced explanations of use on the table. When I was, when I was drinking, uh, I thought most, well, a lot of the time I thought it was brilliant and I thought I was brilliant. And, 
Um, sorry, I didn't hear the word. Alex, just say it again. Sorry, you thought you I, were. I thought I was brilliant. I thought it was brilliant, and I thought I was brilliant. Yeah. And yeah. I, I kind of, I tried, tried myself on the amount that I drank. I, and I knew that I drank a lot. And I knew that it had a detrimental effect to my health. But I was kind of in this, in this kind of mind of being like, you know, I'm a, yeah, I'm a wannabe rock and roll star. I didn't say wannabe. I thought I was a rock and roll star, right? And I drank a lot and I played in punk bands and, um, and I, thought, I thought it was great. And even towards the end, I was like, my life is, you know, I saw it as this romantic thing. You know, my life is going off the tracks. You know, I'm, 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 I'm sleeping on the streets sometimes because I've been thrown out of the house I'm living in. And, you know, in, in a, I'm in this foreign country. I'm, I'm fighting the police officers, you know. And I thought it was this romantic thing. I thought I was a character mm-hmm. in a book. And part of that, you know, I, I would have to say my, my dad, who, who passed away about five years ago, he was a heavy drinker. Um, he was always a happy guy, but he was a heavy drinker. And people looked up to him for that, you know, and I looked up to him for that. And that was, it was very much a part of who I was, you know. Um, But I was in denial of the fact that it was stopping me being who I really wanted to be. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing. And that's, you know, uh, with, there were were projects that I couldn't finish, musical projects that just went on for, you know, I, I, I was making an album for about 15 years and I never did it, right? There were uh, friendships that were crumbling and I was in denial it was because of that because I thought I was great some of the time. A lot of the time I also thought I was the worst person in the entire world. And I was in denial of um, the impact that it was having on my relationships. You know, I thought Mm -hmm. people hated me and I thought that was their problem. Alex, did you self-identify during that period as an addict or just as a heavy user? You kind of sound to me, I mean, you know, you know, Keith Jarrett, not Keith Jarrett, I'm so sorry. Keith Richards has this amazing quote where he said, quite a different musician, let's be honest. Um, I don't have a drug, I don't have a problem with drugs, I just have a problem with policemen. And there was like, you know, he clearly did have a problem with drugs. Um, so he knew he used a lot, but there was at various points in his life a problem, even if some of the problems did have to do with course of criminal justice policies as well or, or what have you. But I guess part of what I'm really curious about is whether in that period where you were kind of living the, glam- the glamorous life, sex, drugs and rock and roll and sort of all the trappings of that, you, you conceived of yourself as an addict or you conceived of yourself as someone who, yes, was using a lot, but had his stuff together was sort of keeping it together and so wasn't an addict that's precisely where we draw that line um myself myself and a couple of friends used to we used to call ourselves functional alcoholics that's what we said that was the phrase that we came up with when I had I didn't come up with that when I had somebody say that I was really happy because yeah that's what I am I'm a functional alcoholic and it wasn't that I've, I've got to say it wasn't that glamorous. It was a lot. Most of the glamour was fancy in my head. In your head, yeah. I was. I, <laughs> I, I, by day, I was an editor working in a magazine, you know, and uh, and and we played shows to like three or four people. It wasn't a big glamorous lifestyle. But yes, we called ourselves functional functional alcoholics. Sometimes I think it was a joke. Sometimes I kind of realised that, you know, 
I um, and it was often on my own. It was often uh, stumbling home at night, or you know, getting in, in, yeah. in, in, in when I was in very difficult times. When I kind of, I kind of knew, you know, it's like uh, I, I'm not an idiot. I knew it was the alcohol that was causing all my problems, and you know, I eventually turned around one day and I just said to someone, "I can't stop drinking," and that was kind of the start of my recovery. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, it's it's really difficult. It's really difficult to say whether whether I self-identified as an addict in this in the way that I understand it now. But I knew that alcohol were, had, was having a detrimental part on parts of my life in the last mm-hmm. couple of years. I just kind of rationalized it as being, yeah, you know, I'm I'm 29. Who wants to be 30 anyway? You know, it's like that. That's how I rationalized it. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to like sort of hear in what you're saying is the the allure and indeed a little bit of pride, right? There's like some pride in being young and reckless. And again, those are the kinds of things which are so deep in our psychology as drivers, right? And which we often just don't even think of when we're thinking of why someone might be drawn to alcohol or drugs. I mean, we all know it at some level, but it's not on the table as something we need to think seriously and critically about. So hence the value of you sharing that with us. Molly, I want to bring you in. You you founded this amazing orchestra, the world's first recovery orchestra, the New Note Orchestra. I suppose your experience in, in setting that up has brought you into contact with with the diversity of people suffering with addiction and the very different ways in which they can come to that problem and and get out of it. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I mean, it's just been really interesting listening to Hannah and Alex talk about it. I mean, I I think there's just a couple of things I would add. What's interesting is Alex's story, I think, is quite common in that the culture of drinking is so pervasive and there's this kind of strange thing I think that people encounter where, you know, if you get married, you have a drink. If you're sad, you have a drink. If you're happy, you have a drink. If you finish work, you have a drink. But somehow we've all then got to take control of that. And you're only supposed to have one or two glasses and, and not fall over and be sick in the street. And all that <laughs> all that, that comes with drinking a lot. And and then I think that that grey space of which so many people Uh, live within which is have I got a drinking problem am I drinking too much well I'm not drinking as much as them so that means I haven't got a problem and I think that comes into that whole kind of denial cycle which is Mm. you know and then it's like when do you actually need to get help and it's when the wheels start coming off but the wheels start coming off a lot earlier than when people actually go and get help and anybody coming into recovery will tell you the wheels were coming off five years ago, 10 years ago, you know. So I, I think it's it's difficult to have a conversation about addiction without having a conversation, you know, without sort of being realistic about what, what drinking actually is. Um, and I, I find that difficult, you know, when we're expected just to just have a drink, go on. And I mean, we've all been in social settings where you don't fancy a drink. And then everyone's like, well, what's wrong with you? Go on, just have one. You know? And that has mm. got to, I think that attitude around drink is just so, is so much, that's a cultural thing. Whereas drug taking is a slightly different thing because it's still illegal, you know, to buy drugs, to score drugs is 
you know, you have to go out there and seek it and you're interacting with people who you wouldn't be normally interacting on a 7-Eleven or going into the spa and buying a bottle of wine. Um, so you're, it's a different, slightly different thing in terms, but, but, you know, if you're drinking a lot and you're in pubs and you're in clubs, that's where, you know, you're going to find drugs pretty easily. Um, so I, I think that denial stuff is really, is really interesting. And I, I think it's also helpful to kind of just remember that addiction absolutely is um, a crisis of, you know, of environment and trauma and poverty absolutely is all of those things. But there's also mental health issues that we haven't really quite touched on and the correlation between mental health and addiction is just so intertwined and it feels a bit like the mental health services are slightly behind in the recognition of that and often people who you know come into addiction services especially in the UK it's treated as a public health issue so you're on a slightly revolving door so if you if you've got a drinking problem you go and see your doctor and then you go into addiction services and but the mental health stuff is is dealt with by a whole different area so often men, mental health services will say, well, you have to sort, sort your addiction out before you come and, you know, sort out your mental health. And I've seen people just go round and round in a circle. So I think yeah. there has to be a bit more recognition around around that. And we're, we're now getting much better at talking about um, mental health. You know, there's a, there's been a lot of work done in the same way that there's been a lot of work done on public health and obesity and staying well. Um, yeah. But there isn't the same conversation about addiction. And, you know, I think it is just we are still in that model, as Hannah was saying, this kind of morality model, which is, well, why don't you just stop? What's the matter with you? You know, we all know people who are drinking too much or maybe have taken too many drugs or, you know, we know them at work or they're in our family. You know, these people and they and there's the sense of, well, you're just sort of bringing this upon yourself. And I think that shame and that kind of, um, you know, yeah, because, I mean, the shame is such a big part of addiction, prevents people from getting help. I don't think people quite know where to go. How do you find a community of sober people? You know, how do you, how do you find that if, you're, if everybody around you is drinking? Um, it's very difficult to kind of shake off all those friendships that you've kind of established or you know, suddenly to have a group of sober friends, it's like, and also the word sober has so many terrible connotations, doesn't it? You know, sober is a judge. It just sounds boring, you know? So <laughs> I mm. think there has to, that has to also kind of what, we have to wise up a little bit around that sort of stuff. And the semantics around these words are really powerful. Um, you know, no one wants to be sober. Um, it doesn't cool. sound very cool, right? It's <laughs> yeah. not what an 18-year-old grows up and wants to be it's sober. You want yeah, to be sobriety has an image yeah, problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it does. And I think there's probably, you know, someone brilliant will come and do that, that work, I'm sure, and make it really sexy and, and viable. But I think there has, I mean, it, just to talk about the moral, um, the moral model a bit more, actually, it, I think that's really... Um, that is why there have been so many statutory cuts to drug and alcohol services. So within the last, I don't want to get really political about it, but within the last 10 years, up to about 40% of statutory services in certain boroughs have been cut. I mean, here in Brighton, it's, you know, we're in a pretty sorry state. There's no alcohol detox 
facility for people to go into. And that will be happening all over the country. And we know about America, you know, I mean, not too much. I don't know too much about the kind of provision in America, but here it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, it's a sorry state, I would say. And Hannah, you said earlier that you, you think the moral model still holds sway in large parts of the of the US. And I suppose when people endorse a moral model of addiction, they're sometimes led to then support cuts to extremely important services that are that are based more on seeing it as a mental illness. Right. So there are two things in that, right? One is what our attitude towards drug use generally should be, because of course, in some sense, the moral model of addiction piggybacks on a sort of puritanical attitude towards drugs, which is extremely hypocritical and inconsistent. If you think of the role of alcohol in our societies, both in the UK and the US, as Molly has just been highlighting. So alcohol is a drug, like many of the illicit drugs, the public health consequences and individual consequences of alcohol are worse than many of the drugs that we criminalize. Um, and yet for very contingent historical reasons, it has protections and a certain acceptable social status. So, you know, we have this bizarre situation where we, you know, permit indeed encourage the use of some drugs and recognize the value they have. and moralize and absolutely condemn the use of others, right? And think of them as all bad and no good. Um, and the truth is that all of these drugs have benefits, which is why people use them, but also bring with them real risks and costs. And the responsible adult question for any individual or government is how to create a system, whether that's in your own life or in the world at large, where we can take advantage of the benefits of drugs while protecting against the costs, right? It's that balance, which is so tricky to get right, but that's what we all need to be thinking about in some sense. Um, so, I mean, that's sort of, you know, the moralism is still there and it's deep. And of course it has racial overtones in the US and the UK. It's connected to gender discrimination in certain ways and gender stereotypes. So it's sort of wrapped up in many cultural attitudes, which we might want to interrogate and be a little bit more critical of. Um, but then there's also this point that Molly brought out, which is just so important, which is that many people who really do uh, struggle for decades with addiction, it's a chicken and egg question, which came first, the mental disorder or the substance mm. use disorder. But in some sense, it probably at that point in their life doesn't matter. What we know is that one of the things that drug use is doing is self-medicating, right? So it's giving people immediate relief from negative affect and psychological distress. Of course, it brings terrible long-term problems, but nonetheless, it helps in the moment with some of the symptoms of mental disorder. And the best predictor of addiction severity is in fact, people who know that they use it as a coping motive. So they know that they're using drugs and alcohol in order to cope with this kind of distress. And so that kind of sort of, sort of vicious circle between mental disorder and substance use is really important. It's an important part of the picture that we have to wrap our, hand, our heads around more. And I think Molly is like absolutely right, but that's another level of stigma and discrimination, just another thing on top of everything else, which is stopping us from approaching drug use in kind of responsible, rational, 
ways mm. which help everybody as opposed to just condemn and moralize. So if you're watching this, just a reminder, please uh, type any questions you have in the Q&A box. We'll take questions from the audience a bit later on. Um, first of all, I wanted to shift focus more explicitly to recovery, I suppose, and how people get out of addiction. And Molly, as I've said, your, your orchestra is doing fantastic work in helping people along that path. In fact, I think it would be great to hear uh, a bit of the music from the orchestra as a little interlude. Molly, I asked you to, to select a piece for us. What have you chosen? And do you want to tell us a bit of background about it? Yes, yeah, so this is a piece that we wrote this year um, for a project um, where we came together with nine other UK recovery organisations to create a video for to, that would be released online for International Overdose Awareness Day. And the day happens on the 31st of August and it's a remembrance to all those who've been lost to overdose but also the fallout for family and friends and loved ones and extended kind of you know circles of people who who know people who've yeah who've overdosed and um it's you know the numbers are shockingly high and uh, this was it was just a project to really raise awareness around this issue and so we wrote and recorded this piece and uh, you can actually watch the video online which I think has got about 17,000 views now which is great.
Thanks very much, Molly. That was a fantastic interlude. Absolutely lovely to hear the orchestra. I, you know, I've attended three events, I think, by the New Note Orchestra, and it's been a real delight every time. I'm pretty amazed by the quality of what you do, particularly given that some of the, the members of the orchestra are coming to music for the first time. So it's a fantastic achievement. I wanted to ask Alex, because you're playing in the orchestra, so we, we would have heard you there. How did you come to it and what did playing in the orchestra do for you? How did I come to it? I, um, I was told about it, actually, um, before I moved to Brighton, I was living in Birmingham and it was in a, uh, a support group, um, a, a conversation support group in, in Birmingham. And um, I was talking about Brighton and somebody said, oh, they've got this sober orchestra there. So that's how I heard about it. And I, 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 looked, I looked it up online. And when uh, myself and my wife were, decide, were deciding where, where to move to, um, Brighton came up on top of reasons. Well, it was one of the reasons why we moved down. Not the only reason, but one of the reasons why, why we moved down. I listened to them online. I thought the music was fantastic. I was very afraid that it was just going to become, um, you know, AA with block instruments or something like that. But uh, actually, you know, it's, um, I did. Uh, when I listened to it online, I, I thought the music was really interesting. And so I came down and uh, I just you know, put my phone in a bag and turned up one day and uh, came to the church and Molly was there and everyone was really friendly and just said, you know, come on in and play. Um, and it kind of all started from there. Um, but what does it mean to me? It's, um, it's first of all, so we, um, Hannah mentioned before, uh, earlier about the, the importance of community. And that's one of that's one of the things that's really important for me. When I was uh, when I was using, I always had these big always had these big grandiose plans of all these things that I was going to be able to do, you know. And a lot of them centered around music. I'm just obsessed by music and always have been. And they never came to fruition because I was either too drunk or too hungover or, or in too much of a, a an emotional or mental health crisis to be able to do those things. And then in sobriety, um, I started to, you know, play again. I started to um, try to do more projects and things like that. But when I came to the orchestra, what I found was a real community of people that had gone through a similar experience as myself, who understood the mind of an addict, because I'm still an addict, whether, I'm, whether I drink today or not. I'm still an addict um, and other people who kind of understand, who understand what that means, but also who want to do something creative, who want to actually build something, to actually do something of real value. And that's the thing that I really like about it. We don't sit around actually talking about, um, we don't talk about what it's like to be an addict. We don't sit around, you know, ruminating on those things you actually get in there and and we we make music we perform and we improvise and we perform and we write and that's that's a really good thing for me and i think for a lot of other people i have i have throughout my life had this a real sense of imposter syndrome i've always felt even even in family i've always felt like i don't belong i've always felt kind of on the outside of things but when I'm with other addicts, like when I'm in a new note orchestra, 
that feeling goes down. It's still there sometimes. I'm not saying it disappears completely. But I think, there's, I think one of the things is, is there's a bunch of other people who feel the same. And the other thing is that um, when I played previously, uh, I'd always played in rock bands. I've always, I always had to be the front man, the one at the front, you know, shouting wildly and, 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 and being crazy. And, and when I'm in the orchestra, I'm playing keyboards on that track. And it's kind of buried right down the bottom there. And it was difficult for me at first to kind of come to terms with kind of, I'm not going to be out here in front all the time. And then after, but after playing a few times, I've really got used to and really enjoyed being part of that whole and working with other people. And in a disciplined fashion, we've got a musical director. It's not like some chaotic thing. We've got a musical director. We do it every Tuesday. So it, it, it's that thing as well, you know, it's that discipline. And it's, a really, it's become a really, really important part of my life, you know. Uh, and I think for other people in the orchestra, we help each other. We all, you know, every, everyone contributes in, 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 in different ways. And it's kind of, it's, to me, it's this, this, this model of like egalitarian kind of, of, of group of, of, of people, you know, and what they can do together. And Molly, what was it that gave you the idea for this orchestra? You, you've said to me in the past about how it was really important to you that it was an orchestra, not a band or a group or anything what, what gave you the idea? Well, my, I've got a history of addiction in my own family and in my own life. And I, I, I've always, but I never really understood what recovery was. I didn't really, you know, it was just like, well, you, you kind of, you either stop or you carry on or, you know, like I was saying before, the wheels come off a bit. And I ended up working in telly and making a, TV programs and making documentaries. And I created this show for Channel 4, which was called Addict Symphony, which looked at how music could help people in recovery, sustain their recovery. And it was so resonating on so many different levels for me, you know, that I just thought, right, that's it. I'm going to jack my job in as a TV director and, you know, start a community group. So I sort of knew it was going to work from the first, you know, from the first, we just, I kind of ran a pilot for about 10 weeks and thought is anyone really going to come you know and turn up and people did and took it seriously and so I, I knew I wanted to start an orchestra because I wanted to play with the form of what an orchestra meant and also for me the whole project was really about that sort of destigmatization of what you in in recovery or you as an addict can achieve and I think there's so low expectation around people who've got an addiction or, or, or in recovery that it's kind of a sort of, you know, you can be faced a lot with a there, there attitude and well done, you were in recovery, but oh my God, you can play a bit of music. So I was like, okay, well, let's try and, let's try and defy some of that stigmatization. So this is why there's such a concentration on the quality of the music. And that's really important because it's not by default, it's by design that we spend months creating the music in a very disciplined um, way. Uh, and we obviously, we have a, an amazing musical director who's a professional person, an artist in his own right, coming in and helping shape that music. And I think when you're working in the arts in a way for people who have become, who are marginalised, and it's the same with working with people with the homeless sector or people with mental health issues, 
there's this sense that does it really matter that the artwork is you're just doing it for art's sake and that to me is music therapy what we're doing is is music therapy and some you know we want to be out there on stage talk telling our stories you know being taken seriously as artists and and i think that's that's the goal that's the aim is is to be is to aim high and yeah i think one of the things that that uh, we didn't get the clip of there when we had that two minute clip is that in your live shows you mix in stories as well stories of addiction and poetry in some cases and it becomes this really quite absorbing experience of how one can use the power of music to confront addiction um, yeah. and i think it's you know uh, there's the same comments that come back to me time and time again when we put on these shows which is oh wow everyone's so articulate and that's a real that's quite shocking when i first heard that and i'm like well what were you expecting why wouldn't people in recovery be articulate you know it's the same mm. as people who've experienced homelessness why wouldn't you expect them to be articulate you know so again we are really in a, at the forefront of trying to change people's perceptions around what recovery can look like i just want to say one thing about playing music and being creative in recovery as well is, is that i think the the arts can really help you find your voice you know for so long as an addict you've i mean alex i'm sure will be great to hear from you alex about how how you feel about this point but for a long time when you're an addict and you're using you lose your voice you lose your sense of self you're so disconnected from who you are and disconnected from others that it can be very um troubling to come in and find your voice and suddenly tell your story and it takes people a long time to work out what parts of their story they want to talk about but i think the arts can can really help accelerate that mm. process and make people feel like they can be heard you know their voice is worth listening to it just might not be a spoken version of their voice um if someone's contributing in a guitar solo or they're contributing with a you know with a rhythm in the room it's so connecting yeah. um it's you know it feels if if it feels quite spiritual as well you know you feel like you're really you've really bonded with this you've got this massive connection with this person but no words have been spoken but yet mm. we've both been heard, you know, and I think that's, it's not just music. It could be, it could be creative. It could be dancing. It could be um, painting. It could be theatre. It could be anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Hannah, what do you think the broader lessons are that we can learn from an example like the New Note Orchestra for what the ingredients of a successful recovery are? Well, well, I mean, it just sounds like a wonderful place to find community and to be able to create um, a sense of who you are, which is integrated with others and which has purpose and value. And if you think about sort of the dialogue we have around addiction, mainly what we tell people to do is stop using, stop using, stop using, stop using. And there's not a lot of emphasis on what you might do instead and what there might be in your life and in yourself, which is meaningful and valuable to you, which might replace the value you found in drugs, however ambivalent that value ultimately was. And so, I mean, you know, from Molly and Alex's description, just this just sounds like sort of 
this wonderful creation where people can go and work together on doing something they care about intrinsically and in so doing get a different sense of who they are and what you know the possibilities that life might hold can be so um I don't know, from a theoretical perspective, it's just like a model. I mean, it's like the ideal, the platonic ideal of what a recovery service ought to be because, you know, it gives people like the good of life to step into, right? And to really participate in and work in. Um, and that's so meaningful and important. Alex, do you think that you've um, gained a new identity from playing in this orchestra? Or do you feel as though you perhaps regained an old one? I think so. Yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting. So I think um, one thing I like I like to swing back to something that was said earlier, actually, about the, this idea of so sobriety being being boring, and mm. and I think that's a really important thing. When mm. I was, what well, one of the th things that kind of stopped me from getting sober, from stopping drinking, was that fear of being boring. You know, and when I did stop drinking, it really was. What is life going to be like now? What is the rest of my life going to be? I mean, I mean, am I just going to be waiting till I die, like for you know, uh, and, and and be sober for that time? And um, things like the new note orchestra, and in my case, new note orchestra, completely blows that apart. You know, when um, when I was drinking, you know, I was playing 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 these little dive bars and stuff like that, and I had a good time, right? But. But now we, you know, we played at the Attenborough Centre um, a few uh, a few months ago, and uh, I played theremin, uh, you know, in the live stream at, at, at the Attenborough Centre. And for me, that's a really great achievement. That's a really beautiful thing to have done. And the music is great, right? When I heard we've recently made an album, and when I heard some of the original mixes of the album, one of them, I just I just sat down and started weeping with joy, um, just because. It was so beautiful, and I never really thought that that was a moment I was gonna I was gonna have. Because when I was drinking, everything was horrible and nasty. You know? And then when when uh, you know, and and with the new note orchestra, we make these beautiful things. And so the idea of like sobriety be, being boring just blown out blown out the water. There's, it's not something I could do when I was drinking. It wasn't something I could do when. When I was using other drugs, you know, it, it didn't matter about creativity that that brought to me or anything like that. Now, but now in sobriety, I can do that and I can harness that creativity, and it's not boring. And about my my sense of self, yes, it gives me a new purpose. I make decisions now in my week that are based on orchestra. Right, Tuesday night I have to do orchestra, but also I've got I've got pieces I've got to play. Uh, so I've got to practice this and I've got to practice that. You know. And I'm talking to other people in the orchestra in the week. And even during lockdown, we were talking to each other each week, talking to each other about music. And I just really like talking to people about music. And yeah, so it, it's, it's that, that the whole of my life where I would plan uh, when I'm going to get a next drink or I'm going to get the money to get the next drink or, you know, or, or drugs mm. or whatever. Um, it's kind of, it's not like that hole's been filled in. It's like there's no need for that because my life is based around these other things that I really enjoy and that I really love. Yeah, that's wonderful. It's time now for us to see how many of those audience questions we can get through. Molly, here's an easy one. Oh, tell us again the name of the piece that we played. Um, it's, it was for International Overdose Awareness Day. Um, did, would it help if I put the 
if I put the thing in the chat, I'll, I'll, I'll find it online. Did it, did it have a name, the piece? Is it untitled? Well, it's, un yeah, I mean, we're not, yeah, it, it is untitled. So if anyone's got a, a good title, um, yeah, we, mm. I mean, it's known as the International Overdose Awareness Day piece. Uh, but yeah, I mean, right. a snappy title would be great. That's what it says on the top of the score, isn't it? <laughs> Great. Okay, there's a couple of questions about other kinds of addiction. Do you think that substance addictions and behavioural addictions should be treated differently? Don't you find that only talking about substance addiction limits people's ability to understand addiction as something that might also involve a multitude of substances and behaviours, including addictions like work addiction and love addiction? I mentioned social media addiction as well at the beginning. Hannah, what do you think? Oh, so I think it's really important to um, try to get as much commonality as we can between chemical addictions and behavioral addictions. And, you know, that's because if you think about them psychologically, they really have very similar functions in people's lives. They have similar kinds of diversities of explanations and both can illuminate each other. I mean, there are of course some differences which you'd be kind of remiss not to just mention, which is that for some drugs, when people become dependent, there is a, there is a genuine physical withdrawal syndrome, which can be dangerous and needs to be managed as a result. So, you know, we shouldn't, in looking for the commonalities, lose track of that point, which is an important point for people's health and safety. But um, 100%, I think that the kind of way we've been talking about addiction today applies equally to both, and that's part of its power. I, yeah. I call myself an addict rather than an alcoholic, um, simply because um, it, affects, it affects everything I do, and I can, I can really slip into... In, into other kind of behavioral addictions really easy or yeah. like you know just spend a week eating nothing but chocolate and to the detriment of my health and i have done that there's a question here does recovery imply abstinence? molly do you want to take that one sorry i missed that was does it does it does it mean do you need does to recovery imply abstinence that's a really interesting question. Uh, yeah, I think recovery means different things to different people. Uh, if you were to talk to the services, you would be working towards abstinence, um, but you might have a form of medication that you might be taking in order to, to achieve that goal. For some people, total abstinence is just, it's, it's not doable. Um, for if you're in, um, self-help groups and mutual aid groups, um, then abstinence is seen as the ultimate goal. Um, we have a kind of, um, I, I personally have, a, a, I don't really have a, a judgment around this because I think if you turn up to the Tuesday nights and you are sober on that night, that is fine. I don't ask questions about what you were doing Saturday nights. You know, but people are very honest about their recovery. Some people are completely abstinent and think that that is, you know, I mean, you'd want to think that abstinence is, is where you want to be, right? Because if you're, if you're not, you're still really using, but you might need medication to get there. Jonathan, can I jump, 
can I jump in here just because I think we've agreed about so much, but I actually, this is one place where I slightly disagree. So I just want to interrogate that thought a tiny bit. I guess I really think that we shouldn't, we shouldn't prescribe an aim of abstinence to people that in some sense that can be a kind of moralism creeping in. And that it's really important always to have that conversation with an individual to see what they want and what's viable for them. So I really like, you know, it, lots of services impose it and lots of people think it's the only option and that may be right for them. But I think there are others where a harm reduction approach is much more genuine to what they want and who they are. And that should be something that as, you know, mental health services or substance use services or recovery services, we should be working with without judgment and as equally as we do with people who, who are aiming for abstinence. So, um, yeah, I, I just have a slightly different perspective on the role of abstinence and recovery. Right. It's a question about powerlessness as well. Alcoholics Anonymous says the first step in recovery is to admit powerlessness what does the panel understand by this? And I suppose, do, do you agree with it? On the one hand, drinking is clearly a choice an addict makes. On the other hand, awareness at an emotional or motivational level of the consequences is somehow diminished. Is that what we mean by powerlessness or, or should the concept be dropped? I think this, go, I, I, my answer would be go back to what I was saying, saying earlier about like the relationship with alcohol being like being in love, right? that's that's where the powerless comes in that that's where it is you know you're that, that emotional connection i couldn't i just i, I just couldn't get rid of that it took it took a, a certain amount of abstinence for that to go it took a long time for that to go in fact and it took a lot of work for that to go and um yeah i when there were, there were a few times when i decided i was was going to stop drinking or a few times when i decided i'm only going to have one tonight and i had one and then I drank the whole bottle or, you know, I drank my wallet mm. dry or I, ended, or I ended up, you know, asleep on the street. It's, it, and it's because of that. It's everything changes after that one drink. All my decision-making changes. Uh, my goals for that night change. Everything changed. What do you think, Hannah? Are addicts powerless? So I, I guess the question for me is what function is that playing? People have to stand up and say it. And I guess I see it as um, a, a reckoning in a public and communal way with the fact that they have a problem that they need to do something about. But personally, I wish we could change the language of that because I think you could have a sort of a vowel which had that function within a group without having to say I'm powerless because one of the things about saying I'm powerless is that if you genuinely believe it, there's not a lot you can do to make changes in your life. And we know that one of the really key things is to support people to feel not like they're powerless, but that they're empowered, right? That they have agency, that this is something that they can do with support and help, they really can do. So I don't wanna to be too down on the, on, on the avowal that people are required to make because I think it does serve a really interesting and important function in the group but I do wish we could have people say something slightly different a little There's bit a more question. enabling 
Yeah, here's a question for Alex. Was it important to admit to yourself that you have an addiction to alcohol before you made a decision to do something about it? Very important, yeah, very important. And what was more important, it was, it was important for me to say it to someone else. It wasn't until I really admitted it to, some, to someone else close to me and that, that, I, that it became, uh, that I became able to, to do something about it. Yeah. Well, thanks, Molly, for posting the, uh, the link to the YouTube video. So there's a question about personal identity. Personal identity is what makes you you. So regardless of whether it's the soul or chemical makeup, is being an addict part of an individual's personal identity? There are clearly environmental factors because of the link with poverty, but that doesn't seem to be the only cause. It's an important theme in your work, isn't it, Hannah, that identity is a huge part of addiction that, that addicts develop. An identity of being an addict from which they, they have to escape. It can be. I mean, I want to immediately say that I don't, I don't claim it's true of everyone, but I think it's a really underappreciated and important component of um, addiction for many, many people. And um, I guess, you know, connected to the recovery theme we've been talking about is then how much it's important to actually fashion a different identity to come out of it, right? So you need to be able to put the addict identity aside and step into something new and different. And I think one of the really important things connected to sort of the environment people grow up in is that yes, for some people, there might be um, an earlier identity that they can reclaim, right? So some people have come to addiction late and they can sort of fall back on who they were and the things they cared about beforehand or maybe early in their, in their, time when they were using too many too much drugs and alcohols and so there's something there for them to return to but I think there really are people for whom they started using so young or have been using so long that there isn't an identity to reclaim there really is this project of fashioning something sort of from the ground up that's new um and you know that's really a creative narrative project which the new note orchestra or other similar kinds of experiences can sort of scaffold for somebody but it's a major undertaking so you know I, I don't see identity as something identity in this sense you know this sense of self um, notion of identity as something fixed as opposed to something that we sort of shift through and create and can refine or have to form again from scratch and there's a question about elephants and baboons that I quite like. That elephants and baboons do get drunk when they find yes, sources of alcohol. They love to. But they can't develop an addiction because they can't stockpile the alcohol or construct an environment where it's readily available. The question is, I'm interested to hear how much the panel think environmental factors contribute to explaining addiction. Seems like a theme of the discussion tonight has been they contribute quite a lot. I think bees do as well. I think bees get drunk as well. My yeah, yeah I, I think I think when I was an addict, um, being able to access it, uh, be, being able. I mean, I think that that's why it was alcohol primarily for me because I did other drugs, but alcohol was the most available one. I thought I always found drug deals a little bit scary, whereas going to the pub wasn't. And I, I genuinely believe that that's 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 why it was. 
uh, yeah, being in an and also I I was in I was always in an environment where heavy drinking wasn't really looked down on that much. You know, I was a, I, I was in bands. I was at university, and then you know, and then I left country and hung out with people in this kind of expat community where everyone drank a lot, and 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 were quite proud of it. Although I did towards the end have to change different groups every single night. I had to find a Monday night group and a Tuesday night group because everyone drank on different nights and I needed to have one every night. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. I think that the themes of this discussion have been really good and important in that I think we, we have emphasised that addiction is is not simply a moral failing and it's not uh, simply a neurobiological compulsion but is a psychological phenomenon and a very complex one that it's not just about the individual but also about their social environment and that it's not just one thing you know, that there's this huge plurality and diversity of the of the reasons that people can be drawn into addiction and many different ways it can feel like from the inside and accordingly We've seen, I think, that recovery is very much about putting the right environment in place, giving people a sense of community, a sense of purpose, a sense of self. And it seems to me that the New Note Orchestra is a fantastic example of how to do that well. So thanks very much to everyone attending this for, for your questions. Thanks very much to Hannah and Molly and Alex for your incredibly interesting discussion the next Forum for Philosophy event is on the life and work of Susan Stebbing. Don't miss it. Good night. <laughs>